Support for Sponsor Talk and the following message come from Sponsor CX. If you're looking for an innovative, intuitive, and simple way to manage your sponsorships, look no further than this sponsorship management software. Sign up for a demo today and find out how easy it is to manage your sponsors. Learn more at www.sponsorcx.com. Hey there, and welcome to the Sponsor Talk Podcast, where we interview some of the leading minds in the world of sponsorship marketing and discover the various ways in how brands interact with properties in sports, arts, film, music, you name it. In today's episode, Avish Sood chats with the marketing leaders behind Kellogg's, Petco, Hershey's, and the Martin Agency to learn more about how purpose and innovation is driving their brands forward as they look to engage consumers in a more meaningful way. Hopefully today you learn something new about the industry and challenges you to keep thinking differently. I'll start with intros for Tarek, Kristen, Alexia, Tiana. But Tarek, um, you know, would just love a quick intro into who you are and the role that you do right now. Well, first of all, Avish, let me say thank you for putting this group together and for the work you guys are doing for such a, an important issue that's just frankly not getting enough coverage. <clears throat> so thanks for the opportunity. I'm Tarek Hassan. I'm the CMO of Petco. Uh, a company that is uh, focused on the purpose of health and wellness of pets. And as uh, you probably heard, we got a few to take care of with 35% of all American households uh, adding a pet through COVID. So it's been a fun ride. Kristen, the ad world's changed a lot in the last year. So explain to us, obviously, what you do with the Martin Agency and then what the last year has been like for you. Sure thing. Hi, I'm Kristen. I'm the CEO of the Martin Agency. We represent clients like Geico, DoorDash, UPS, Oreo, um, Old Navy. Um, hopefully a lot of brands you've heard of, hopefully a lot of ads that you can think of when I say those names. Um, the world changed dramatically for, for, I think, ad agencies last year. We, um, I think at a time when, when advertising budgets really decreased, um, you know, roughly, I, you know, you can see a range of anywhere from seven to 20%, depending on if you include political advertising going away. We actually grew 30%. I think some of that is because we were fortunate with our client list, but I think even more of it is we were fortunate with our clients, the individuals. Um, we had, um, I mean, so much changed. I think the pace with which we moved was faster. Some of that is they had to get um, maybe ads that might've been seen as insensitive or inappropriate, meaning maybe there were bundles of people or people high-fiving. We had to get those off the air quickly. So we had to create new content just as quickly. And in the process, I actually felt like the trust between the clients and the agencies grew. Um, they spent less time testing. We all, we, both, we all spent less time deliberating and more time making and more time putting work out in the world. And then we all saw revenue grow. And um, I really hope that coming out of the pandemic, that the trust and um, nimbleness with which we grew together doesn't dissipate, that it, that it stays. But it, I can't imagine it's something that uh, you know goes away very quickly. And, and obviously, I've worked uh, and seen your team's relationship with a lot of your clients and how close knit that is. Um, so we're lucky to have you here, Kristen, and, and thanks for that insight. Um, Tiana and Alexia, CPG World. Um, Tiana, why don't I start with you? Um, tell us a little bit about your role. It sounds delicious, <laughs> the VP of Global Cereal. Um, why don't you tell us what the last year has been like for you? Hi, and thanks again for having me, Tiana Conley. And uh, as mentioned, I'm the Vice President of Global Cereal at Kellogg. Um, you know, COVID has had an explosive impact on at-home consumption, but I don't think I'm telling you anything you already haven't experienced firsthand. Um, you know, it's reignited growth for us in the cereal category in particular, um, although we've experienced growth across all of our categories. And it's been really interesting because the category had been in decline and it's provided an opportunity for brand reappraisal that some of our brands have not experienced in quite a long time. So that's really um, exciting. Um, Kellogg, as you know, has a treasure trove of um, brand marks and um, it's been really exciting to see how those brands answer the different needs of consumers throughout the pandemic. So, you know, if you're looking to be more healthy because, you know, health is top of mind, we have brands like Special K and Kashi and RX. 
Um, if you are feeling a lot of um, insecurity around, you know, at one point people were like, I'm not sure about food quality and safety. We have staples in our uh, in our brand house like Cornflakes, which is the original um, brand from Kellogg. And, you know, but also if you're, if you're just, you know, there's a lot going on, you're seeking joy and just, you know, the comfort of nostalgia. We have brands like Frosted Flakes and Fruit Loops. Um, or frankly, if you're just bored, um, as happens in my household with young kids, um, we love making some Rice Krispie treats. Um, and I think that's really um, enabled us to answer the needs of consumers, whatever their mental state is, and as that mental state has changed throughout the pandemic. Love that. It sounds like there's a food option for it, no matter what human emotion you're going through. Um, and I definitely resonate with that. Alexia, how about yourself? Uh, thanks. So Alexia Wharton, I uh, am head of Hershey Canada's marketing group. So very similar to what Tiana was talking about, we've seen a big shift in, in consumer consumption. So even within retailers, so retailers have shifted into more of the stock up. So Walmarts, et cetera, and grocery stores away from C&G accounts, convenience and gas accounts. We've also seen pack, pack shift as well. So as you think about people going and, and going into their homes and more of that cocooning effect, what we've seen is that people are trying to replicate experiences that they would have got out of home, but bring that into the home. And, and whether or not it's watching movies together as a family and using Twizzler items or baking with the family because they can't go out and get treats the same as what they would have done before COVID, which they would lean on chippets to do. So we've really seen that uh, shift and we've been fortunate enough at Hershey that we've had brands and packs that really uh, apply to these circumstances. So we've been able to shift. And I would say the biggest thing within the last year is just being able to shift fast enough with supply. So we all know, especially, you know, it continues that supply across the world for commodities and packaging, et cetera, it is a tough go with, with different groups and getting even labor things like uh, lumber shortage, and, and it applies to pallets that we're shipping in. So there's a lot of different dynamics that, you know, you don't think that impacts us uh, directly, but when you start to think about where it hits around the world, it, it definitely has an impact on whether or not we can pivot fast enough into the consumption and new behaviors of consumers. Yeah, and there's a word like pivot. I, I've been, I've been uh, associating that with the whole last year and a half, so I feel like that's a great way to to kind of end it off with the introduction piece. Um, the panel itself is talking about brand purpose. It's, it's words that we, we probably live by and, and hear every single day, just like Pivot right now. Um, so I wanted to start off, you know, by kind of asking, it, right now it's, it's very easy internally and externally to understand commodities that you sell or the products you, or what you do, right? Um, but unlocking the why is, is all around what brand purpose is about. So that has become much more important as Gen Z and millennials clearly are looking for purposeful brands and internal employees are looking for a rallying cry um, around the company and around what you do and why you do it. So each of you has a distinct purpose. Tarek, I'd love to start with you. You know, why is brand purpose important? And can you tell us a little bit about um, Petco's purpose? Yeah, I mean, honestly, brand purpose has driven everything that we've we've done in the last three years to to pivot the organization. There's the word again, pivot the organization. Uh, frankly, before COVID, um, when you're you know re in a market like retail, and we you know we've heard the headlines around the sort of the retail apocalypse. The, the reality is that apocalypse is only true if you don't create a definition for yourself, a differentiation for yourself, and ultimately that that comes down to what is the purpose of the organization. <clears throat> when I joined the org. Uh, with the new leadership, we had a pretty clear understanding that we needed to differentiate ourselves in the category. Um, and we made a decision that there was a, a pretty open wide space in the health and wellness space to go. It not only delivered in terms of something our customers need and parents need in terms of the way they engage with their pets, but it frankly was something that was sitting there right in front of us on our store fronts, which is 18,000 employees who get up every single day that are in the stores on the front line. And most of them would rather work with the pets than they would people. And they're committed to getting up and having an impact on the quality of lives of those pets every day. It, they were literally gems in the network that we weren't even leveraging to the extent that we could have. Secondly, you look at the business model, unlike retailers who have just merchandise to try and figure out how they create that connection. We had services in place. So vet, you know, vet services for care, grooming services, and training. 
which really gave us a unique place to ultimately start to think about how do we connect in the total care of the pet. And the last piece was we had significant data. 85% of all of our transactions take place on our rewards card, which gives us a direct uh, line on first party data to start to understand what's going on inside that household. Uh, initially with the pet, which is work we're doing today. If you look at, you know, if you go to the app and you do the right registration with us, we'll give you a dashboard of care for your pet, whether that's reminder on vaccinations or whether that's other parent life hacks to keep you moving. So that, that's been in the center of what we've done. And we repositioned the company about six months ago and changed the name of the company, Petco, the health and wellness company. And we've now repositioned everything that we're doing around decision points. Uh, and that was a couple of quick steps. We removed all food with preservatives and additives to them first. We removed shock collars and other evasive training products because the headline is really simple. If it's right for the pet, they'll be right for the business. Um, and then most recently, uh, we've gone into a space of, uh, we've always done work with the foundation around cancer research, but we've done a joint venture around early cancer detection in dogs uh, with canine onco. So, it's one of those things where when you pivot and you find that purpose, it not only changes the mission for the people you're talking about, but it changes the mission for the business and the way you approach the business. When you talk about that, Tarek, so there's decisions that you've had to make as a company since you've come on around things like you, what you just mentioned, removing artificial uh, preservatives and uh, products that you might not um, agree with or, or you know, fit with, with the direction the company is going. How do you make a decision like that, knowing that it could have impacts on, on the actual business results? Um, the reality is it, it, it can have actual business. You're right. So when we made the decision, on, we were talking about taking $100 million of, out of our portfolio. Well, you have to replace it. And what we've actually found is as we've made this decision, replacing it has become easier because we have now a clear definition. We have brands and vendors who, frankly, wouldn't have come into our channel previously but now because we've set ourselves into this position and we've defined what that purpose actually is, it now aligns more with them. Um, and that's where, you know, you're starting to see the kind of successful growth that we've had. We just had our, 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 our uh, quarter report earlier this, this week. We closed our 10th straight quarter of uh, positive growth. And that's on the back, I'm, I'm confident, of the decisions we've been making. Um, not only have you had the boom with, with pets, but then parents have a, a lots of decisions in places they can go. Um, and creating that connection is, is, is working well for us. Yeah, that, I mean, that's an amazing example of, of sticking to your purpose and kind of seeing the growth that comes along with it, even though you've got to make tough decisions and, um, you know, watching as someone seeing that from the side, it's, it's a great, uh, great example for a lot of us to um, think about when we think about our brands. Um, Tiana, why don't you describe to us, you've mentioned so many different iconic brands as part of the Kellogg's portfolio, you know, how do each of these individual brands, or if there's specific ones you wanna to talk to, um, how do they lean into purpose? Yeah, and let me start with the purpose of the company because it is really foundational and fundamental to who we are as Kellogg, really since our founding 115 years ago uh, with our founder, W.K. Kellogg. You know, we really see that as the lifeblood of our company. It shapes and directs everything that we do. Um, so Kellogg itself, um, is not just a company name, but we view it, it's a brand itself, really. And one of our strongest um, equity assets in the entire company that, you know, not only holds meaning for consumers, but, you know, obviously our employee base as well. We are so proud of the vision and purpose that we have in place. Um, we want to create a world where people are not just fed, but they're fulfilled and create a place at the table for everyone. And we are so inspired by that. Um, it really comes to life um, in everything that we do, but we specifically also have a platform for philanthropy called Better Days, where we've made a commitment to improve the lives of 3 billion consumers around the world. Um, this platform is really underpinned by three pillars. One is about feeding people in need, two is about nourishment and nutrition, and three is about nurturing people in our planet. And so as we think about how our brands come to life in a specific purpose within their serving, um, either one of the three or all three of the pillars, um, everything from um, Morningstar Farms, which is a plant-based um, product, you know, you think of Kellogg, you think of cereal, but we actually do have a broader portfolio than that. And that's really about creating a, you know, a better world that's sustainable. You know, if we think about um, everything like, uh, and then co contrast that to a brand like Frosted Flakes, where we have our Mission Tiger program, that's really about um, preserving sports 
um, and play in schools. And so we really have, you know, as, as we think about the broader purpose, that really is a guiding light for us um, that influences shapes and thinks about uh, or helps us think about every brand in our portfolio through that lens. Very cool. And I think when we think about purpose, a lot of times as consumers, we think about the brands themselves, but we forget that the organization has a purpose. It ladders down to the individual brands. Um, and, and it kind of leads me into some questions for Alexia. I know, uh, Tiana, you mentioned the Better Days commitment, but Alexia, your team also has the Shared Goodness initiative. And obviously that's leading a lot of the purposeful work that you're doing. Can you kind of describe what that looks like and, and where that um, ladders down to the brands that you have? Yeah, sure. So the overarching uh, purpose for Hershey is shared goodness. So shared goodness really is around uh, communities, uh, children, uh, planet, and really how we focus on it all really matters and it all interconnects in how we, the way we do business. So I don't think a lot of people know this, but similar to Tiana and Kellogg's that shared goodness is really embedded in our history of 125 years. So when Milton Hershey first went out and started the company, he opened an orphanage for kids and, and that was kind of his give back and it was really about shared goodness and that has continued on through the 125 years and there's still a Milton Hershey school for underprivileged kids that, you know, a lot of our profits today over two thirds go to the school to help support it and, and better our kids for their future. So really when we talk about overarching pur purpose and bringing it down into brand positioning and what a brand stands for. We do have this North Star that's embedded in our culture and how we do business on a day to day. So, for example, in terms of Hershey franchise and Hershey branding, it's really focused around the togetherness and life is sweet and how we bring that into our activations. So as we think about partnerships, for example, we're partnering with Boys and Girls Clubs of Canada and we're partnering with NBA and then bringing it to life through community events like building basketball courts across the country. So that's where there's an opportunity not only to say, okay, we're linking back to the purpose of the organization, but we're also making it authentic to the brand so that it's embedded in the brand positioning and purpose. And it makes sense because back to you saying the why, it's also the so what. And it has to be, uh, you know, what does it mean to the brand? Because what we do on Reese can't necessarily be the same as what we do on Hershey brand. And it really comes back to how we link it to the overall purpose, but then knowing our consumers and who purchase individual brands to be able to execute. Yeah, absolutely. And, and when I think about um, togetherness and kind of the work that you're doing in Canada specifically, the NBA is a great example. Um, you know, for anyone that doesn't know, you're, you're actually teaming up with the NBA to, to do community grassroots initiatives and, and build basketball courts. So um, with the idea of together being at the forefront of it. So it's, it's, it's a great example of how that comes to life to one of your brands. So um, appreciate that work. And, and moving over to Kristen, um, you know, Kristen, since you've been with the Martin Agency or you've been in this role specifically, you've redefined the purpose of the company. So, I mean, it's a big deal of what you guys are doing. So tell me a little bit about that and then how that um, kind of fits into the work that you do with your clients or the clients you bring on. Yeah, thank you. Um, I would say there, you know, due to things like Gen X and Gen Y, who I think somebody brought up earlier and their predisposition towards brands of purpose, I think that most of the brands um, today have a purpose and have a distinct purpose. And a lot of brands have done the work internally to make sure that they have philanthropic or, or good goals that are larger than the brands that the product that they make. And, and what we just witnessed from the last three speakers really exemplifies that. Um, what we have found though, is that for brands to grow, it's not enough to be right. And it's not enough to even be purposeful because the majority of brands do advertise both correctly and with purpose. And so the brands that actually grow the fastest, according to a lot of the research from Kantar and Bain and McKinsey um, are the most talked about brands. So what we found is that being right isn't enough, that you have to break through and being guaranteeing breakthrough is more about being talked about, which means that you either have to deliver your purpose in, in such a way that it is pronounced and magnetic enough that it punches through the millions and millions of dollars that people spend every day, 
or you have to equally know what you stand against. And what I think has happened in the past year, especially not only with the pandemic, but with racial reconciliation and, then, and even the election, is that more and more consumers have asked brands, where do you draw the line? What are you standing against? And so I would say the majority of our clients come to us with a clear purpose. We spend a lot of time figuring out with them what, what they stand against and then making sure that somehow that makes its way into the work. It, it doesn't mean that the work is shocking. Um, it doesn't mean that the work um, courts um, disruption for disruption's sake, but it does mean that it is brave and that it is either put in placement um, like, for example, Oreo ran an ad last year, the night before the election. It was at a time, it was an ad about unity, but it was at a time when really no one wanted to be unified. We wanted to hate the other side, whichever side we were on. We were not ready to make nice, to quote Dixie Chicks. And, and so all of a sudden, you know, here comes Oreo with this ad and it exploded on Twitter, not the ad itself, although the ad itself, but the merits of why would you advertise the night before this election and what are you doing? And a, a weaker client would have pulled the ad. A weaker client wouldn't even have run the ad, but they stayed with it. It ended up being one of their most breakthrough ads by far of the year, but I think ever, and one of the best testing ads ever and their own consumers came to their aid and said, this is why we did that. And this is what we should aim for. So what we talk about a lot as an agency is looking for brands that are willing to impact culture in order to impact sales, because there is a definite correlation. It didn't used to be that way. It used to be that awareness drove sales or preference drove sales. But today I can be aware of Coke. I can even prefer Coke over Pepsi, but I drink water. So the truth is awareness and preference don't correlate as, as immediately to sales as they once did. What does correlate most often to sales is conversation. The most talked about brands grow two and a half times faster than their competitive set. So when we spend time courting clients, we really spend time trying to figure out who has the stomach to be talked about. And again, if you look at our reel, we don't do a lot of shocking ads. I mean, Geico is beloved. Oreo is beloved. Um, DoorDash, it, people, you know, we, we get paid to make sure that people value the brands that we represent. So we're certainly not going to tarnish them, but we do really figure out where they can stand apart and stand up for something. And not all clients have the or even, even the support internally, frankly, to be able to do that kind of work. We have found that a lot of CMOs would say they agree with what we're saying, but not all of them feel that within their corporations that they have the latitude or permission to be as brave as they want. And one of the things that happened during COVID is because things had to move so fast and things weren't tested as often, um, more work got out in the world and we got to see the impact of the work. And by and large, our clients grew disproportionately. Like someone might say, okay, well, that's cheating. You have DoorDash and all food apps grew last year, but DoorDash grew two times faster than Uber Eats. Like they went into the pandemic with 15% market share and walked out with 53. There are a lot of other competitors that are sharing that 47%. You know, UPS fared better than their competitors. Um, Old Navy fared better than their competitors. Geico fared better than their competitors. Geico had the most talked about ad uh, or ads 33 out of 52 weeks of the year. Now you could say, well, they're a big spender, but you know what? Other big spenders, AT&T can't claim that. Comcast can't claim that. Verizon can't claim that. Um, and so our job is to make sure that our brands are talked about and that, and when they do, we know that there's that correlation that the most talked about brands sell more and they did. And so that's really our goal as an agency is to find those people. So if 84% go of ads go unnoticed, which is a shockingly horrible number. If I'm a CFO and I'm one of these three people on the panel, my, my panelists, and I have to go and defend a budget and my CFO is looking at me and I'm one of them, I'm thinking, why am I going to give any of these folks the money they're asking for if 84% of the time their ads go unnoticed. So I have to commit if I'm them and if I'm an agency to them, I have to commit to getting them in that 16%. That is my goal. My goal and my promise to their clients is to make sure that you're in the 16% that break through. And, and that's really what we look for as an agency. And, and Kristen, I wanna pause there for a second and kind of bring it to the, the greater group, starting with you actually. Um, you know, a lot of times when you think about standing out 
and standing against something, um, you know, sometimes it's, it's an uncomfortable conversation internally as well, right? So oftentimes uh, marketing teams can get pushed to what's trending, what's profitable, really what the competition is sometimes doing. So how do you explain that internally? Start, this question's for everyone. Um, and describe that purpose that we talked about, the ability to stand against something, even though it might not always be the popular decision, um, and that it can sometimes be limiting to the business itself. So how do, how do you describe that internally or to the clients that you're with? Yeah, well, the first thing is we have to explain that attention is not limiting. It's actually expanding. And I know that seems counterintuitive, but we work with clients early on to not only figure out what they stand for, but what they stand against. It's one of the very first things we do. And we align on that tension because we say it, it takes tension to get attention. And, and very early on, we do all this in new business. So very early on, the clients that don't subscribe to that point of view, usually we don't advance or we, or we don't advance them. Like we are constantly sussing out each other to make sure that we share the same belief patterns. We share the same values. Um, that's really what I think new business should be more about than, you know, a, a copy line or a, a tagline. I think it needs to be flipped. I wish in most cases that new business pitches would spend the amount of time they dedicate to a final to a creds meeting and the amount of time they dedicate to a creds meeting to a final it should be reversed they should spend two to three hours vetting each other on whether or not they share the same philosophy in one hour figuring out if you've got big ideas because i suspect i know the agencies that my my panelist friends um have chosen and and i i suspect that if they kept that caliber in their pitches there wasn't a bad agency in their pitch they didn't, they weren't looking, it's like there are no bad cars on the market, right? They weren't choosing between um, a car that can barely get down the road and a Porsche. You know, they were choosing all among very good cars. So at that point, whether or not somebody nails the tagline is any given Friday, but whether or not you share the same beliefs and the same beliefs about how brands grow is really the ball game. Um, so we spend a lot of time doing ambition workshops and doing tension workshops and um, figuring out if, if that bravery and if that camaraderie exists around that. And then how showing how we make sure that the ads that come out the door on the other end are culturally relevant and the speed with which we need it to happen. I think one of the very hard parts, and I, I, I suspect that my peers here are in the same boat, is that because we've all grown up with advertising, everyone thinks it's easy. And especially if you're doing ads people like, people think those are even easier, that it's somehow easy to do comedy. I think it's very hard to do comedy and do it consistently and do it well. There was one week we had this year where Geico held the number one, two, three, four, five, and 10 most talked about ads. I mean, six of the top 10 most talked about ads were held by one advertiser. People think, oh, that's easy. It is incredibly difficult to do and do it for the length of time that that team's been doing it. And I think what often happens is people don't give advertising and advertisers the credit that they would give to a consulting company like a McKinsey or even your law firm. I know some clients to spend more money on their legal team than they do on their advertising. And it's shocking to me that you would spend more time possibly defending your company than building it. But I do think that sometimes advertising and marketing isn't, isn't considered um, as substantial a vocation as it is. And I think we all probably study it a lot more than the average consumer or than the average CFO. And, and therefore, um, our, our opinions should be trusted more so than the average person um, when it comes to choosing work. But that's not always what happens. And, and Alexia, Tiana, like I know oftentimes, and I work in CPG as well. So um, protection, you know, what Kristen was talking about versus brand building, there's a, a delicate balance there. So can you, can you talk about the, or, or can you kind of go back to the initial conversation around how do you manage that conversation internally, knowing sometimes specifically in CPG that oftentimes we can be a little more on the conservative side for protecting the brand. So Tiana, why don't we start with you and then Alexia from there. Absolutely. I think it's a, a really well articulated question. Um, and I think it really does come down to um, two things. I think one is courage and the second is authenticity. So I think, um, number one, you really have to have the courage to stand up uh, behind the, the convictions of what your brand purpose is. Um, and then secondly, I think you have to have uh, authenticity as part of the backbone in terms of um, your purpose 
really connecting to um, who you are as a brand, as a company. And so I, I but, I, but I will say that is much easier said than done. Um, and truly you don't know who you are until you meet the moment where it's being tested. And I think 2020 certainly was that year where we saw not only a pandemic, but also racial reckoning, um, frankly, in our country and around the world. And um, I'll just tell you an example of, of one situation um, where we did some uh, communication around um, food injustice with a campaign called Feeding Freedom. And this was really, um, so when you want to talk about a conservative company, Battle Creek, Michigan is a very conservative place. And we're 115 years old as a company. And so, um, you know, I think that uh, talking about race at work is challenging, but if you put the lenses that I just put over it, I think it becomes even more challenging. Um, but we did say in our purpose that we wanted to create a place at the table for everyone um, where people could be not just fed, but fulfilled. Um, so that really did give us our, you know, meeting the moment challenge to say, are we gonna, are we going to sit by passively and silently or are we going to say something? And so we decided that we were gonna say something, which I think is a big, brave, bold move for a company like Kellogg. And we decided to create a campaign to drive awareness around injustices in the food ecosystem that frankly was a bit agnostic from our company. But you know, as we think about the food industry, everything from how we source ingredients and agriculture, um, think about black farmers who've had their land taken from them, um, all the way to how we, um, how food systems and aid work in, with WIC programs like WIC and so on and so forth. Um, and we wanted to, um, we felt like as a leader in food that we had the right to come and um, be a leader in, in this space, but also um, a responsibility to, to do that if we did say that indeed uh, we want to create a place at the table for everyone and helping people understand these injustices. We created a campaign that brought together experts and influencers to talk about um, how those injustices have played out, particularly um, for Black people. And so um, that was like a big deal, a really big deal. And um, the way that we drove the campaign was we started inside. So we created an edu set of educational films and content and discussions and roundtables to really help people say, starting with me, when I'm a, if I'm a food designer and I'm designing food and I'm thinking about a program for WIC, um, how can this help me? Um, and we had people talk about WIC and, and, and all of the myths that people have. Oh, well, WIC... Um, people on WIC are on WIC because they're poor or they're lazy might be something that people have thought. And we use this campaign to re-educate and reimagine and help people have empathy and understand that actually people on WIC can at times have, they work harder than you because they have two or three jobs. Um, they, they, um, they may have been an ex-military person that has fought for your freedom and your safety and your protection in this country, but they, they work very hard, they don't make a living wage. So it helped kind of break people's minds open to say, oh my gosh, you know, I, I had these beliefs or these stigmas or um, a way that I thought, and when I uh, started to really understand how systemic racism influences every aspect of our food system, it makes me think and behave differently in terms of how I approach my job, in terms of how I innovate, in terms of how I approach my colleague, in terms of how I approach the world. Um, and we're really proud of that work that we started uh, internally and it eventually took outside. Yeah, that, that, that's amazing. Um, great work and I feel like uh, it, it's just, indicative of kind of the purpose that the organization kind of stands for. Alec Alexia, on your side, um, going back to the original question, you know, your thoughts there. Yeah, so I think it's also knowing what you stand for. So similar to what, what Kristen said, if you don't know what you stand for as a brand, it's really hard to make the decisions and jump in uh, in a position that's risk. So, you know, how do you encourage people in the organization to take a risk and take that leap, knowing that sometimes it pans out and sometimes it doesn't? But very similar to what was said before, you know, our marketing teams spend a tremendous amount of time understanding the consumer, the dynamics of the marketing market, what what's, uh, consumers resonate to and how it relates back to our brand positioning. 
So knowing that and knowing what we stand for helps us make those decisions and what's the right decisions in the moment based on cultural events or you know, whatever else is happening at the point of time to drive that breakthrough and really drive that purpose through. I'll give an example, and this is a little bit of a pivot from, uh, you know, all the, the feel goods that we've, we've had, but very relevant uh, to building uh, positioning in and purpose for brands. So I mentioned before, like at Hershey, we have, um, you know, we have multiple brands that we can lean into and position differently. So O. Henry is a Canadian local jewel. It isn't available in other markets, but we were uh, on kind of the forefront of a cultural event that we, we took a risk and we went for, and it could have, you know, resulted in a very different way. So a few years ago, uh, marijuana was being legalized in Canada. And uh, one of our brands uh, came to the table with, with the agency on the idea of what if we position the brand in a new product as 425? which for those that are well-versed in that space, knowing that 420 stands for a very iconic moment with marijuana, but the idea is after five minutes, you get hungry and that's where 425 comes in. So we had a lot of discussions internally whether or not this was right for the brand. Is this something we want to stand for? Is it us taking advantage of a cultural moment in time versus us taking advantage of, this is actually our brand positioning it, positioning it, positioning and it ladders up very well to the moment that people are having a lot of conversation and legalization is on the forefront of expanding across Canada. So going back to knowing your brand and knowing what you stand for, we stand for hunger. We we want to fulfill hunger and, and really when you think about it, 425 ladders up to that uh, ideally in the right way. And it builds that conversation, like Kristen said, that you start to have a conversation around a movement that's happening within a country, but you're doing it in an authentic way that you can bring in a brand that actually has a space within the conversation versus jumping on a trend that's not actually within your wheelhouse. And, and to consumers, they're smart. They see through it versus what's authentic to a brand versus, hey, this brand, I heard them say something completely different uh, two weeks ago. So there was a lot of conversations around, you know, we're a very conservative company. How do we get this through in terms of approvals based on, you know, our history with, um, you know, that conservativeness and, and being related to kids, et cetera. And it really went back to how do we bring the facts to the forefront? So similar to what Tiana said that they, they did some internal PR and essentially what we did was inter internal PR as well grounding it in facts of how this will position our business to overcome some challenges we're having with consumer age groups and how do we start a conversation that actually brings in a dynamic of a consumer that we were looking for. So it really started with that conversation and getting to the right stakeholders to position it in a way that it, it was the right decision for, for the company. But if we wouldn't have done that legwork and recognize that there was internal hurdles to overcome, we wouldn't have even proceeded with the idea. So I think, you know, as marketers, we have to realize when there is internal hurdles, uh, you know, and as a marketer, you're set up for that PR. That's what we do on a day-to-day. -day, and it's very similar to what sales does uh, for the retailers they sell. We're selling ideas and we're selling uh, brands and, and it starts with, with internal. And once you get internal online uh, and, and excited about something, it actually comes through bigger. We had our sales folks and our retailers going crazy about this idea. And we actually sold way over what we could make in the first year. Uh, and we had to do a repeat in terms of the limited edition. So when you have an idea of that, and you take a risk uh, with, with your idea and, and you get that conversation, you get that breakthrough. And it actually drove a lot of business results as well. Yeah. And, and being here based in Canada as well, like we, we've seen the success of the 425 campaign. And it, it's just a great example of how the purpose of, of you know, challenging hunger um, and combined with <laughs> consumer insight that people are hungry after 420, um, it, it adds up. But I, I totally relate to the fact that there's the internal sell-in and then the external sell-in with consumers. So it's a bit of a dance. Um, and and I, I totally respect that. Um, Tarek, for my next question, why don't we go start with you? Um, when we think about a brand's ethos and a brand's purpose, you know, how do you define what is important and what is the most important actually factor in determining that why? So there's things we talked about earlier, which is distinction from competitors, you know, long-term strategy. If you look at brands like GM who are 
br branding and positioning to where they're going, um, consumer meaning? Like what, what is the most important thing when you're thinking about developing that purpose? Well, first of all, let me just say as a Canadian to Alexa, I'm looking forward to getting back home. I hadn't heard this one and, uh, and trying that out. That's, that's awesome. Um, you know, look, I, I think someone mentioned it earlier. I think it was Tiana said it earlier. You, you, you have to start with authenticity. The, the mistake I think you also end up in, and I think you saw some mis, uh, disconnects this year with brands that tried to participate within the context of what was taking place within the social environment, and they misstepped because they didn't actually understand who they were, they didn't understand who their role was, and, and they, there was this sort of obligatory reason to participate without understanding whether they should, how they should, um, and in what fashion they should, whether it was through COVID or whether it was through some of the social injustice. I think you saw a variety of examples where you could tell there were brands who hadn't spent time truly understanding what that ethos was, what that true north was. Um, and and I, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about those who do it well, um, you know, I think there's times when you should be thinking about those who, you know, might want to think twice before they do it. They're understanding when it's not a time to sell, when it's time to listen, when it's time to, um, you know, simply not be on the sidelines because your ethos doesn't fit into it. We have a lot of conversation around that. And I think that only happens through some of the things you've heard all of these folks talk about today. When you actually, I think Kristen's point about taking your time to truly not only understand who you are as a brand, but really look for that in your partner to bring that to life, right? There's a lot of companies who know that very well inside their hallways, but the execution, both internally with their internal communities and their external communities miss significantly because they just don't spend enough time thinking about the curators, the creators and the partners that they need to bring that to life. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm, I'm avoiding your question a little bit uh, in, the, in that I think that frankly, getting to the ethos, understanding the purpose is frankly the easy part. The hard part is, getting it off the paper and actually bringing it to life and then sustaining it and, and having the continuity of it. Um, it's really easy for me to say our purpose is enhancing, you know, improving the lives of, you know, pets, uh, parents, and partners. That can come to life in a bunch of different ways. It took an, an agency partner understanding the depth of that insight and that true interaction between human and animal to get us to it's what we'd want if we were pets. It's such a simplistic idea, but what was brought to life by the Droga team was a human truth of the of the lengths that we will go for pets and the, and the lengths they will go for us. Well, it's the same thing with pets. And so what did we do? We simply, and there he is, giving you his point of view on cue. Kristen, why don't we go over to you? Um, you know, you talked a little bit about the purpose of fighting invisibility in everything you do. So like, How'd you, how'd you come up with that? And, and what was the driving force? I know you talked about standing against something, clutter, um, just break it down for us. How did, how did that come through? I think one of the mistakes um, that I've seen that agencies make very often is they're, they're very afraid the phone's not going to ring. And so they make sure that they are as blank a canvas as humanly possible because they feel like they have the capacity to help make any brand great. And the truth is any brand can be great, but most brands won't be because most clients don't have the courage or don't have the environment to really stand out and stand apart. Um, and most agencies don't treat themselves like a brand. And so I'm a firm believer that we are not just a company. We ourselves are a brand. We have competitors. We have to compete for the right clients and we have to win more than our fair share in order to grow. And so we um, internally went back through our own DNA figure out what was core to the work that we put out in the world. What were the common themes? I am a strategist by trade. So I just, I actually think of the Martin agency like my client. And we wrote a positioning statement. We wrote ourselves a tagline. We developed swag. Everyone has fighting invisibility t-shirts. We make a different t-shirt for every year. Um, we live it out in our beliefs, in, our, in the choices we make, in the work we put out in the world, in the tools that we use to come up with brands. It is a red line all the way through. The thing we loved about fighting invisibility was actually its ability to be meaningful to clients and to our internal employees. So externally, what does it mean? Because I do believe the other mistake people make or agencies make is they write a line towards their own employees, but it doesn't impact these folks in any meaningful way. So my thought is if I'm them and I'm sifting through a thousand ad agencies or even 20 ad agencies to figure out who's right for me, what I want to get to is why do you believe what you believe and why should that make my brand grow? So if, if I'm an agency that just believes in 
treating people well, that's lovely for my employees. I don't see how it helps them. So fighting invisibility to these folks would mean making sure you're getting in that top 16%, that you are not part of the 84% of ads that go unnoticed or unremembered. And here's our belief as to why and what it's going to take. Internally, it stands for representation. It means that we are going to build a different model. And um, I've been at the agency now in this role about three and a half years. And when I started, um, our leadership team was pretty much all white and 80% male. Today, we are 63% female and 37% people of color. Um, we have pay equity at every level of the company by age and gender. We have um, officers on down. We have um, gender representation, equal gender representation at every officer level. Um, we have worked incredibly hard to make sure that we are reflective of the audiences that we want to um, talk to out in the world. I think we're one of the few, if not only agencies in the country that are led by a female CEO and a black CCO. I think we are one of the only two agencies in the country that have a black CCO. Um, so the, the, it was very important for us to live out our mission and for when clients to call us, they see that in the teams that show up on the Zoom or in the room every day. And therefore the mathematical probability of us having work that will be representative or meaningful to those audiences is um, hopefully higher. Either way, it's easier for us to look in the mirror and be proud of who we are. So fighting invisibility works both ways. It's meaningful from a business perspective and it's meaningful from um, the way we construct our company. And then of course there are hundreds of studies that reflect that if you have a more diverse leadership team, you have higher employee engagement, higher margin, higher revenue. And we are yet another case study that that has been true. We are not the only case study. I think that, that those facts have been true for a while and they've been documented by Catalyst and many other brands. It's kind of shocking to me that more publicly held companies, knowing that there's so few things they can control, can control that and, and don't. Um, it would be if I was ever a CEO of a publicly held company, it'd be the, one of the first things I would do <laughs> because it just feels like that's in my control. Um, and so I can applaud a lot of the measures that have been taken to make sure that you have one woman on a board. But the truth is, statistically, um, that person is a token. Until you have 50% or two thirds of your leadership team being representative of diversity by age or gender or, or race, um, you will not see the fruit of that, of that in your revenue or in your, um, or in your employee engagement. And so it's not enough to have one and we have to do better. We have to do better. Yeah, and I think as, as marketers, we're all looking at it in the lens that um, there's work to be done. Obviously it's, it's very um, exciting to see a lot of companies, yourselves included, um, putting in that work internally versus exposing it externally as the forefront of the focus. Um, but you're right. That's something that we can all control. We can all think about as we think about diversity and inclusion. Um, I kind of want us to take a step back into the conversation, knowing we've got a little bit of time left to talk innovation. Um, I know that we, we could definitely talk diversity and inclusion for a lot longer than an hour. But Alexia, Tiana, I'd love to kind of say, um, innovation, when you think about it, how does that fit in with what you have from a purpose standpoint as an organization or with your brands? And do those new innovation launches that you think about generally have to ladder back into that? Or is there a room for it to, to kind of say, do we want to experiment with something new? So I'd just love to kind of start with Alexia and uh, see, see what your thoughts are there. Yeah, so I don't think it's not a hard line. It's actually, um, you know, Going back to advertising takes a lot of work. Innovation takes a lot of work as well. And, um, you know, it, it's a kind of a combination of doing the right research, but then understanding where the stretch is. So what consumers, what do you know that consumers might want before they even know they, they want it? And being able to stretch into that space and, and put something out there that's a winning idea. There's some brands that you have to stay really true to the core and oh henry is one of them where you have to have some attributes that go back our positioning is uh hunger and fulfilling hunger so you need to be in line with those attributes but there's other brands that you can start to move away like with hershey brand where we're looking at even innovation beings you know for sustainable cocoa we're looking at oat milks we're looking at other uh you know things that we know that are going to be long-term trends as well 
and knowing that the brand has room, even though that, even though the market doesn't have the space defined right now and going out and being one of those first players in and being able to define what that looks like in the market. So I think it's an opportunity to really push your brand. And again, it's knowing what the brand stands for. It's the same as within advertising is knowing what it's positioning and knowing what the, the space is to go and stretch it a little bit. The other thing, the role of innovation where I see it is to re-engage the consumer. So re-engage your loyalists or re-engage lapsed users to get that excitement back into your brand and an opportunity to communicate something that's relevant. So I think that's where innovation really plays at, at my heart and the core of our brands and how we position it. We, we do a lot of innovation every single year at Hershey and we do it with intent because we wanna drive that conversation of new news, but then also reinforce what the positioning and where the role is for the consumer within our brands. That's great. And Tiana, yourself, I think we're probably gonna wrap up the conversation, but um, Tiana would love to hear your thoughts on innovation and how it uh, fits into the purpose and, and portfolio. Yeah, I mean, I actually see it the other way around. For us, purpose gives fuel to our innovation. You know, if we think about the idea that we want to create a place at the table for everyone, that should be really um, influencing how we think about new ideas, not just for traditional product innovation, but our policies corporately, our partnerships, our business models. And so you see that coming to life. Um, you know, from a traditional innovation standpoint, we launched the first uh, cereal box with Braille, um, with Cocoa Pops in the UK. And that we are so proud of that, you know, to kind of broaden um, the audience that can participate um, in, in shopping at the shelf. Um, we used our purpose to fuel um, new innovation launches for um, our Morningstar Farms with Incognito, creating a more accessibility for consumers who don't eat meat um, to participate um, in, in awesome savory tastes um, and even leaf jerky, right? Um, you know, that are, it's not just the, the consumer, delighting the consumer, but also creating advantages for the environment. Um, we have done experiments with vending in our away from home uh, business uh, to create new business models. So we uh, partnered with uh, Florida State University to do a vending machine called Chowbotics, where people can get um, cereal and fruit out of vending to create, you know, healthier options. Um, but it even goes to things uh, like policy. Um, we recently expanded our family um, family leave policy to be more inclusive and reflective of the needs of our consumers. So it can fuel innovation and new ideas in that space. And even partnerships as we think about um, Mission Tiger with Frosted Flakes and how we decided to partner and collaborate with Shaq to bring sports programs to school. So, I, we really see purpose as foundational, fundamental, and fueling uh, the way that we approach and think about innovation as a company. I love it. And and I know we're, we're just about out of time. So wanted to do a quick thank you for each of you in participating. I know Tarek had to uh, leave just a few minutes early, but this was an awesome conversation. I'd love to do it again sometime. Oh, thank you so much thanks for thanks. having us. As always, thanks for listening to today's episode. Make sure to follow us at Sponsor Talk on Twitter and the sponsorship space on LinkedIn to join and engage with our community. Hope you enjoyed today's episode and have a great day.